This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Gretchen Spreitzer is the Keith E. and Valerie J. Alessi Professor of Business Administration at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on employee empowerment and leadership development, particularly within a context of organizational change and decline. Her most recent research, which is what we're going to be talking about, examines how organizations can enable human thriving. This is part of a movement in the field of organizational behavior, which is really centered at the University of Michigan. It's called Positive Organizational Scholarship. Gretchen co-authored the great book, How to Be a Positive Leader, Small Actions, Big Impact, with the legendary Jane Dutton. In this episode, Gretchen and I discuss the ways in which all of us have more control and discretion than we believe we have in order to make small, meaningful changes in our work, no matter what work we do and no matter where we fall in an organizational hierarchy. We talk about the importance of finding meaning in one's work, of having purpose, of making an impact, and we explore practical ways to make this more of a reality in our daily lives. We also discuss the spillover from work to home and from home to work and how energy is a renewable resource that doesn't necessarily become depleted but can be mutually enriching across the different parts of life, work to home, home to work. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate it and review it on iTunes so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it too. All right, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from a leading expert on what it takes to thrive at work and in the rest of life. It's Gretchen Spreitzer. Gretchen, welcome to our show, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Stu. It's great to be on Work and Life. Thanks, Gretchen, so much uh, for, for joining us. Let's, let's start by talking about this concept of thriving at work, engaging with work, being more productive. What is it, let's start at a real high level, what does that mean uh, to you? Well, it all goes back to a personal uh, situation a number of years ago where several colleagues and I were talking about how much we loved our work, how meaningful it was, uh, but how it was the kind of job that just never ended. There was always more mm. that could be done. And one of our big concerns, myself and a couple other of my colleagues, was how do we keep doing this job, staying on the cutting edge, uh, pushing the envelope, and keeping growing at the same time that we're not burning out? And so that was the stimulus for us wanting to understand 
what it meant to thrive at work. And so we began a multi-year research program to understand what that means. So to answer your question in brief, what we found is that people thrive in their work when they have the joint experience of feeling energized or vitality at work. They feel alive at work at the same time that they feel like they're learning, growing, and getting better. Vitality and growth. Yes. Those, those are the keys. So um, could you say a little bit more about when this first hit? And was there a, like a moment where you thought, that's it. I love my work, but it's too much. And I am afraid that something's going to go wrong here. Did something go wrong that you realized, wow, I've, I've got to pay attention to this in a more serious way because it's going to lead to disaster? Well, actually, Stu, it actually came from a little bit different place. So there is a lot of work on how people learn from difficult situations in life and how when you get a, a, a diagnosis or something, a crisis happening at work, that that jolts people out of their complacency and says to them, there's something better, and they reach for that something better. Um, there's a lot of work on that topic. We were actually interested in the opposite issue mm-hmm. of without there being something traumatic happening in life, how can people proactively take the initiative to create a thriving um, work life, a thriving um, work situation without necessarily there being you know, a a cancer diagnosis or, you know, a a personal crisis like a divorce? How how can people proactively do that without something like that happening? Mm -hmm. And so for us, a lot of it was rather than waiting for, you know, that midlife crisis or something else to happen in life, how can we help people turn on that light, light bulb to say they want something better out of their work and life? And that certainly uh, makes a lot of sense to to try to be um, initiating change before uh, a disaster hits to shake your world. Which, again, many, as you say, many people, when they, you know, when disaster strikes, it really does cause them to think differently about what their priorities are and where they invest their time. But you wanted to do that to bring to the world ideas for how people could do that without having to suffer those uh, those jolts, those shocks. Yeah, and for me, I think you know. Beyond this, I want a job where I can um, thrive. I also wanted a job that would allow me to thrive in other aspects of life as well. Mm. So I have a terrific husband. I've got two great kids, now teenagers. They're still great, Um, even as teenagers? Come on, Gretchen. (laughs) Wonderful. Really? Um, And, you know, I'm part of a community, a vibrant community where, you know, I like to be part of what's happening in our neighborhood life, like to contribute in the community. And so I wanted a job that um, was very fulfilling and full, but not at the expense of having other parts of life being shortchanged. And so by thriving, by understanding thriving, um, it, it was important for also understanding how to thrive in other aspects of life. Of course. Now, just say a little bit more about why that's true. It's, it's, it yeah. seems really obvious, certainly something that, that I've been thinking and working a lot on for, for a long time. Absolutely. Why, why is I, that? I feel like we're kindred spirits on, <laughs> on this note. 
Um, so when we first started this research, that was one of the concerns our research team had is, okay, well, we want jobs that are fulfilling, um, jobs that we're really attracted to, excited about. Would that interfere with being able to thrive in other aspects of life? Because, so that because was your time and our, attention would be, would be kind of sucked up into the, the professional it, domain, exactly, leaving nothing left. Exactly. Um, so that was one of our, our important research questions that we wanted to look at early on in terms of what kind of difference does thriving at work make. And so we designed a study where we looked at the extent to which people reported thriving at work and thriving outside of work. And what we found was a positive correlation. It was about 0.60, um, significant, positive, fairly substantial. And when we asked people about that relationship, what they said is, when I'm thriving at work, I'm actually doing things that are creating energy rather than just depleting energy in the doing of work. And so that by the time people finished their day at work um, or went on to other activities in, in home life or in personal life, they had good energy to be able to make that transition. Mm-hmm. This is what and we call vice, positive spillover. Vice, yeah, it's a positive spillover. From one part of life to another. Mm-hmm. So thriving at work produces rather than depletes energy that you can then transfer over into your family life, your community life, your spiritual life, the things outside, typically outside of work. Yeah, we call it a virtuous cycle. Virtuous cycle. It's something that's producing more Mm -hmm. resources than it's using up. And as a result, we can use those resources to do many things that are important to us. And do you find that when you uh, present this idea um, to people to, to people in the business world that they are um, that they understand it and accept it, or do they tend to be skeptical about it, or somewhere in between? Well, I think I think many people say I want that, mm. but maybe like in the example that you gave in you know your introductory comments, they say I've got too many other pressures, demands, um, constraints in my work life that prevent me from really being able to do the kind of things that create energy, not just deplete energy. So they feel like it's without their, uh, outside their realm of control of what they can do. Ah, yes. And, and so therefore they, they feel kind of trapped or not able to produce the kinds of changes that, that, that would enable them to feel, uh, those, uh, the sense of thriving, the sense of vitality and growth that then produces energy that they can use in the other parts of their lives. Right. So then the strategy becomes, okay, well, what can you do? Right. What are the small changes that can have big impacts? Mm-hmm. And in fact, my colleague Jane Dutton and I just produced a book, um, came out earlier this summer called How to Be a Positive Leader. And the subtitle of it is Small Actions, Big Impact. And the idea in the book is what if you want to become more of a positive leader, a leader where you can thrive more in different aspects of life and have your people thrive more in different aspects of life, what are the small actions that can kickstart things moving in that direction? Not making huge changes overnight, but what are the small things to get you moving in the right direction? And that the the theory of small wins that underlies that approach is is the very same one that that we've been using uh, in the 
the work that I do in teaching leadership from the point of view of the whole person here at Wharton, mm-hmm. uh, based on a program that we started uh, back in 1999 at Ford Motor Company, uh, which basically takes the same idea. And so, uh, you know, we really are walking along parallel paths in our in our work, where the idea is to experiment in a way that is under your control with some small change that would produce a demonstrably positive result uh, in all the different parts of your life, your work, your home, your community, and yourself. Mm-hmm. So, so then the question is, well, if so many of us know why this is true, then why don't we see more people actually engaging in those small win behaviors? That's a wonderful question, Gretchen. Let me ask it. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, what do you it, think? Yeah, well, in your introductory comments um, or your introduction of me, you talked about one of my areas of expertise is the idea of empowerment. And my um, point of view on empowerment is one that isn't so much focused on what the how empowering a system is or whether there's empowering leadership or structure, but instead what are the psychological preconditions that allow people to self-empower themselves? Uh, Gretchen, please continue. The conditions so, for empowerment. Yeah, so what we found is that for people to psychologically experience uh, uh, empowerment, rather than being told you're empowered, what people can do to self-empower, what we found is that there's four really key elements Uh, The first is people feel empowered when they have a sense of meaning or purpose about the work that they're doing. So we feel like this is the engine of the self-empowerment process to look for areas in your work that create meaning or fulfillment or purpose, something where you have a personal connection Mm -hmm. to the work that you're doing. Now, Let me jump in here, Gretchen. Hang on one second. So first, I want to distinguish empowerment from self-empowerment. I think you made a very important distinction, and I want to just ask you to elaborate on the distinction there because there are or at least have been historically programs of empowerment in companies that actually have the you know the counter message right by telling people they're empowered and then not actually mm-hmm. empowering them yeah absolutely right so you mentioned your program at Ford Motor Company um, some time ago my initial research on empowerment was also at Ford Motor Company mm-hmm. and they were making large-scale efforts to empower the middle layers, the middle managers Mm -hmm. in their organization. And what we were initially finding with their good intentions of saying we want to empower these people is that people weren't actually feeling very empowered. Mm -hmm. And so my dissertation research was to understand why and what we could do to actually help people feel empowered despite maybe not having a very empowering context that they were a part of. So when I refer to empowerment, my point of view is one more of self-empowerment of what individuals can do to create empowerment for themselves, regardless of whether they're in an empowering system or not. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so the first and really the anchor is meaning or purpose. Yeah, and and looking for how you can find more meaning or purpose in your work life. You know, some jobs that's very obvious. If, you know, if you're a nurse, mm-hmm. gosh, I'm saving lives. Or if you're, you know, uh, creating medical devices. Or if you work for a nonprofit, maybe that connection is 
more clear. Or but even I'll, if you're in the military industrial complex producing bombs and bullets, you, you yeah, might think that what yeah. you're doing is saving a nation. Yeah. Yep. Right. But, all of us can find ways to have meaning or purpose. Maybe it's in the way we develop our people, or maybe it's in the way we make a difference to our customers. Um, for each person, it looks a little bit different, but yes. we can all find ways where we can see opportunities for meaning or purpose or finding more connection in the work that we do. And, and is the key to that to see the kind of social significance of your efforts and your behavior in terms of, you know, having some kind of impact on the lives of other people? Is that really the heart of it? Well, actually, I mean, that links to your colleague Adam Grant's work about pro-social impact. Impact is actually another um, dimension of the psychological empowerment. So I think the two are related but you could have meaning or purpose without necessarily having it be impact in the system. Really? So, so what's an example of uh, meaningful work that is, you know, sort of not connected to social impact? Uh, well, your meaning could just be about doing good quality work, not making mistakes. Um, it could be about showing progress. It could be about getting things done. It could be about increasing um, profits. Uh, mm -hmm. It could be a lot of different things, but it doesn't necessarily have to be about pro-social impact. Okay. So, so the first principle or the first idea for uh, generating a greater sense of self-empowerment is meaning, purpose about the work. What are the other three? Okay. So the second one is about... Uh, competence or efficacy. It's feeling like you have the skills and, ab and abilities necessary to do your work well. So the idea behind this is that if people are empowered, but they don't to do, figure out the best way to get work done, but they don't feel like they have the capability to do it well, that can lead to feelings of disempowerment. So I've studied in the past um, survivor responses to downsizing. Mm -hmm. And so often when companies downsize, they take out layers of employees. They ask the employees who remain to take on additional tasks um, of coworkers who are no longer there. And oftentimes they're told, now you're empowered to do this work. Well, if you Yay. don't feel like you have, <laughs> yeah, it's like, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't feel like you have the skills and abilities necessary to do your work well, that's not going to feel very empowering. No, you're going to feel like a failure because you're not able to do what you're responsible for. Right, exactly. Uh, the third dimension is what we normally think about as empowerment, and that's self-determination or autonomy or having a choice in how you do your work, um, having a say in how the work gets done. So, um, you know, you were just giving the example of being able to have some control over your scheduling of your day. That's one kind of autonomy. Um, there are other kinds of autonomy that don't necessarily have to do with scheduling, but about how you get your work done. Um, so, you know, as a teacher, I have a syllabus and I have a, uh, you know, a, a curriculum that I'm fitting 
that I'm fitting within, but I have a lot of autonomy in terms of how I actually teach my class. Well, that's because you're a college professor. You're not teaching in the core curriculum in K through 12 where that's that's, all prescribed. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And in fact, the other book that I have uh, uh, coming out this summer is called the best teacher in you. And we've been studying that very issue of um, positively deviant teachers who again, self-empower themselves in a system that often isn't very empowering. Repeat the name of that, because I'm sure we have some teachers out there listening who would want to know more about that. What's the name of that? Well, maybe this is a topic of another conversation, but it's called The Best Teacher in You, Mm -hmm. and it's written with Bob Quinn and two colleagues who are more in the teaching profession Mm -hmm. at Patel for Kids. Kate Hainoski and um, Mike Thomas. Great. Uh, yeah, I would like to explore that further, and I'm sorry that uh, I took you off on that track, although actually I'm, I'm glad that we got to that. So, so self-determination, autonomy, uh, as in a, a you know, typical professor's job in, in, you know, in higher education, you have an incredible amount of freedom to teach what you want to teach. Um, not always so true in the K-12 through world, but you've got some new insights about what it means for teachers even where you're, you've got you know a very stringent set of prescriptions about what you have to teach. Um, so we've got meaning and purpose. We've got competence. We've got self-determination. Yes, and then the last dimension is about impact. And impact is about feeling like you're um, making a difference in your team, in your unit, or... In the best case scenario, you feel like you're making a difference in the organization as a whole, that somehow the system is different because of you being part of it. So we talked about that a little bit a few minutes ago as we were just um, making distinctions with meaning or purpose. Mm-hmm. But it's that is really, I think, where some of Adam Grant's work comes out in terms of that, that, that impact. And he looks at it from a soci- pro-social aspect, but it could be lots of different kinds of impact. What I'd like to talk about when we return is how an empowering um, work environment, whether created by yourself or um, you know encouraged by the people around you, how does that then translate in term, into uh, a thriving life and, and what it means to take what one gains from the sense of empowerment uh, and, and, and enriching one's life you know, beyond work. We were just talking about uh, what it takes to produce self-empowerment in the workplace. And what I want to now turn to is kind of where we started, and, then, and that is how do these conditions of a sense of meaning and purpose, competence or efficacy and being able to get done what you are responsible for, having autonomy, in uh, being able to figure out how to get it done and then having some sense of impact on the people around you, how do those conditions then lead to a sense of thriving that then spills over in a positive way to the other parts of your life? Gretchen? Yeah, so uh, great questions. And let me actually answer that. I can answer it from a data perspective, but let me ans- answer it first with a story or an anecdote. So um, my husband is a public policy economist, and I would say that he was the kind of person that 
really epitomized what this empowerment looked like. You know, he did work he found deeply meaningful. He built up a lot of competence over the years in terms of skills and abilities. He found the best way for him. He played to his strengths, found the best way for him to get his work done, had that feeling of autonomy, and um, saw the impact that his work was having. Um, we had just been finishing up a sabbatical, and he got probably the worst diagnosis you could imagine. It was the kind of diagnosis that when you're having an MRI, they say to you, I think you should hope that they find a brain tumor because it's going to be better than what we think you have. And he got the diagnosis of having ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. This is a disease with no treatment and no cure. It's one where your body over time, uh, for most people, about three years, um, where your body slowly becomes paralyzed. When you get this uh, and your mind stays active, stays normal. So when you get this diagnosis, the doctors say something to the effect of, this is a good time to get your life in order and start thinking about what's on your bucket list. So, of course, devastating. You know, you're in a, in a daze for, you know, days or even weeks. And my husband, after a lot of, you know, soul searching and thinking through, what do I want to do after getting this diagnosis, realized that the life he was leading, um, the kind of mm -hmm. research that he was doing, um, the kind of involvement he had in our daughter's lives in terms of coaching their various um, sports teams, uh, his um, involvement in the neighborhood and so forth. He said, you know what? I don't want to change a thing. Hmm. For me, it's not about going off and seeing the pyramids or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, jumping out of an airplane. He said, I love the life that I have right now. And to me, that was an indicator that he really was self-empowered and he was thriving in such a way that when he got this kind of life-changing diagnosis, he said, hey, I, I'm exactly where I want to be right now. Even getting this very difficult diagnosis isn't saying to me I should make significant life changes. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask that question, well, how does being empowered um, how does thriving in mm -hmm. your life really matter? I think that's a really um, poignant example of why um, not waiting until that kind of trauma occurs in life, why proactively creating that self-empowerment, proactively creating a work environment where you can thrive can enable you to cope or even um, uh prosper or be, um, I don't even know what the right word is, but be in a really good place when really d difficult things happen mm. in life. So what transpired, if I may ask? What inspired him? What transpired since then? Oh, what's transpired? Well, I'm happy to report that six years later, he's still able to walk. Um, he is still working part-time. We're really deeply grateful that um, his uh, disease progress has been very slow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for letting us know. So, so in a sense, he's very lucky. Uh, I know it's strange to say, but I think that's that's kind of your point, right? That that he was able to craft a, 
a working life that uh, that was truly um, uh, gratifying and in which he was thriving and which he didn't want to change. Uh, so, and I think that's <clears throat> the point. He did that before right. having something difficult like this happen. And I think too often it's easy to say, I'm just going to accept the current situation as it is right now. Things are out of my control. I I, there's not that much I can do. There's too many constraints, and to say I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna live with that, um, uh, with that perspective or that point mm-hmm. of view. Instead, I'm gonna try to create the best life I can, um, so that knowing down the line, if something should happen, I've made the best use of the um, strengths I have, the situation I'm part of. And so I can feel like I'm living the life that's worth living. Mm-hmm. And it's never too late to start that or too early. Ab- absolutely. Now, it, it, uh, it could happen post-trauma, but why wait why for wait? that? Why Yeah, why not yeah. move in that direction? A hundred percent, Gretchen, a hundred percent agreement on that. But I know that there are people listening to us two professors talking and they're thinking, oh, very easy for them to say. Uh, you know, even her husband, a professor, has the life. You know, a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility, uh, a lot of resources. Um, you know, that's just not my world, and mm-hmm. I don't see how I can do that. So let's mm-hmm. talk to that issue. Yeah, well, it's uh, interesting you asked that question because we have a tool that my colleagues at our Center for Positive Organizations have created um, Justin Berg, Amy Rizniewski, and Jane Dutton uh, have created a tool called the Job Crafting Tool. And I'm well we, aware of it. I've you seen are it, wonderful. Oh yeah, yeah. No, Justin's a, a you know was a doctoral student here. Of at the, course. And so, of course. Yeah. And Amy was here for a while. In fact, she'll be on the show in a couple of weeks. Okay, so they'll have a chance to tell you more about it. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, it's a tool that's now been used by people in all walks of life to say, what are the parts of your job, maybe around the edges, where you still are doing the core work that's in your job description, but you're finding small, subtle ways to make changes in either how you do your work, who you do your work with, or the um, frequency of which you do different tasks. So... um, one example of this would be um, you are a an example they use in a lot of their um, uh, setup for mm-hmm. the exercises. Mm-hmm. Say you're a, a cook or a chef, and you're trying to figure out how to craft your work so that it's more um, meaningful, more energizing to you. So if you're coming to that job and you're going through the motions, doing the job design uh, or following the job description, what are small changes you can make around the edges where you're still getting the core work done, but you're making the work more interesting? So if, for example, if you have a real interest in creativity and, and art, maybe there's a way you can bring the design of the way food gets presented to the work that you do so that you're able to bring this creative aspect to the work that you do. And there Another, is an, there's an infinite variety of, of possibilities for, for crafting work to make it more meaningful and to have greater impact and even greater autonomy, perhaps. Exactly. And what's neat about this tool is it takes you through a process 
for whatever kind of job that you're in for finding what those levers are to make those small changes that can make a difference in your work, regardless of whether you have a lot of autonomy or not. All right. So, so uh, once again, repeat for our listeners where they can find out more about that tool. So if you go to the Center for Positive Organizations, if you Google that, mm-hmm. um, you can find out about the different kind of tools that we offer as a center. And one of them is called the Job Crafting Tool. In fact, if you even Google Job Crafting Tool, you will get information about it. And this is something that really anybody in any job can do. Exactly. Uh, so if you're if you're listening, you're thinking, oh, that doesn't work in my world. You don't know my boss. You don't know my coworkers. You don't know my customers. They're impossible, and uh, I have no room to breathe. I have no room to, to you know, to to adjust. Uh, what Gretchen and I are telling you, and many others in our field are saying to you, is that hmm, maybe you should think a minute about that and do some exploration of what's possible using tools like the job crafting tool. Um. Now, but let's take the next step, Gretchen, and that is, okay, so I've made some some positive changes in my work environment that enable me to thrive. How does that help my family? How does that help my role in society uh, or in my community? How does it help my my physical and spiritual life? Where is the positive spillover? Where's that connection? Yeah, it's a a good question, and I haven't done... The empirical research beyond what we talked about at the beginning of the show mm-hmm. to be able to show that demonstrated impact. Um, but the the big element that I would say is that if you're doing work that's fulfilling, if you're crafting work so that you feel more empowered and thriving, you're going to have more energy to do the things that matter in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. So rather than work being something, you know, when we think of the word work, we think of um, a vision of something that's hard to do, something that uses up resources. When we create this alternative perspective on work, where work is something that generates resources, not mm-hmm. just depletes resources, then we're able to have energy for all aspects of life. And what I've discovered in my work where I ask people to design experiments that are consciously and deliberately intended to produce improvements, you know, demonstrable improvements, not only at work, but also at home and in the community and for themselves personally. And I've done this now with literally thousands of people. We just completed a Coursera MOOC uh, that had 57,000 people enrolled in it. Uh, you know, quite a few, quite a, quite a, few, you know, quite fewer who actually completed it, but still thousands did. They did these experiments. People of all ages around the world, and virtually everyone can come up with ways of making small changes that enable them to produce value in all the different parts of life. When given that task, when when given that challenge, and when they're in a learning environment that that encourages them. Uh, to pursue these changes, to to make these these small changes that indeed do bring value to the different parts of their lives. It's it's yeah. available to everyone. Yep. Well, the other piece you said, and when they're in a, a learning environment that supports and enables them to do this, the other piece that I would really emphasize is that even if you're not in a learning environment, to create a learning environment. Um, So figure out who are the people either in your work life or your home life that are 
that are energizers, that people that when you spend time interacting with, that they help you become better. Mm-hmm. That they're the kind of people that help you reach your full potential. Or they're the kind of people that if you're uh, feeling down, um, that you can go to them and they will be a source of uh, invigoration or source of restoration. And so look to create space in your life to have t- more time with those people. And yep. then alternatively or in additional additionally get rid of the debbie downers yeah the people that you know are the black holes my colleague wayne baker does a lot of network research he calls these people black holes they're the Mm -hmm. people who suck all the energy Mm -hmm. out of you and so find ways to not have so many interactions with with those people or Mm -hmm. find ways to create some boundaries yep um, and and that can be really potent too in terms of what can you proactively do to create that kind of um, uh, learning environment. So, for example, um, a number of our students here at the Ross School of Business, we encourage when they graduate to create that set of um, uh, fellow students that will continue to be their resources, their support system, where they can, you know, check in every month with each other, you know, maybe meet for a little mini reunion you know, every year, but something where you're creating this community of co-learners that can support each other. So you don't have to wait for your leader to do that. Absolutely not. But find the right people in your own life Mm -hmm. that can help serve that role for you. And and people have a lot more control over, you know, who is close in their social networks, uh, and who is not, than, than, they, than they typically think. And, and the kinds of tools that, that we're talking about here can really help you to, kind of, to wake up to the idea that you have more choice, more control than you currently think you have. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily have to be your friends. I mm-hmm. mean, they don't, they don't have to be people in your own organization. They could be people beyond it. So think creatively about who are the right set of people that can help me grow, help me reach my full potential in in different domains. So if you're um, a manager in an organization or you're running a small business, as many of our listeners are, uh, what what are some of the important tips that you could offer to help uh, someone who's responsible for other people in an organization to create an environment in which they can self-empower, they can thrive, and, Mm -hmm. and thereby... Uh, bring more of their whole selves to work and, and feel uh, feel good about and, and are enabled in bringing energy from work in a positive way to the other parts of their lives. What are, what are some of the key things that people should be mindful of as managers? Yeah, well, I can definitely offer some tips, but let me first offer a resource. And I mentioned it earlier in our interview, and that is this new book entitled How to Be a Positive Leader, Small Actions, Big Impact. The book is written in such a way that each chapter comes from a leading thinker in the realm of positive organizations, and we asked each author to provide an evidence-based set of strategies for how to become a more positive leader, and those strategies are along two different dimensions. One set of strategies are about what you can do yourself to become more of a positive leader. So in my chapter about thriving at work uh, with my colleague, Chris Porath, we 
set a set of strategies. What can you do yourself to enable more thriving at work? But there's also a second set of strategies that move up a level of analysis to say, if you are a leader, what are the strategies you can use to enable your organization to become more thriving in that chapter? Mm -hmm. So two sets of strategies, one individual strategies, one what can I do as a leader to create an organization that does more of Mm -hmm. this? So I'll offer that first as a resource because I think it has a very broad set of uh, strategies that people can Mm -hmm. tap into, regardless of whether they're talking about how do I create positive change? How do I create a more ethical work environment? How do I engage in job crafting? How do I negotiate more mindfully? How do I create more high-quality connections? So that just gives you a flavor of some of the topics that are in the book. Awesome. Now, How to be you, a positive leader. If you want to be a positive leader, here are the small actions, mm-hmm. the, the everyday strategies, the positive practices that you can engage in to become a more positive leader yourself. One, two, what are the things you can do to design a more positive organization? So what are some of the keys to in the, on that ladder score as a, yeah. as a business leader? So, so for my piece about thriving at work, I'll, I'll drill down into that because that's our topic for tonight. Yep, and, and we only have about a minute or so left. So Okay, so four key things. One is empowering your people. We've talked about that a lot already. Mm-hmm. The second piece is sharing information, being very transparent so that people can really understand um, the competitive situation that's inherent in their organization. The third is minimizing incivility, taking rudeness, disrespectful kind of behavior out of the system. And then the fourth is offering performance feedback so people know where they stand, how they can improve, where they're already playing to their strengths. So, can, can you just go a little further levels. on the on the incivility piece and and how yeah, we? Yeah, uh... so this is really the the heart of my colleague Chris Poret's uh, research, where she shows that there are so many examples of incivility in the workplace, whether intended, like bullying, or unintended um, acts of omission or ignoring people or um, you know not listening to comments, rudeness. Um, many examples of that. And so what are the strategies that as leaders we can do to turn that from incivility to actually examples of creating high quality connections? And and there's so much that, that a leader can do to really change the culture through her own actions and also through the interventions uh, and approaches that, that you just mentioned. In the In the 30 seconds we've got left here, Gretchen, what's the what would you say is the most important thing that you want our listeners to know about thriving at work as a whole person? What's, wow. what's really the essence <laughs> of it? Boil it down to one key idea, if you can. Yeah. So I would say the one key idea is to be proactive, take initiative, and find ways to play to what your own strengths are, rather than me trying to look like Stu and be the best Stu, where I can most be mediocre, I need to find what my own strengths are to figure out how to become the best Gretchen. And when I'm the best Gretchen, then I'm going to be most likely to thrive in my work. And in the other parts of your life as well. Absolutely. 
Well, you've clearly done that and continue to do that, and I'm glad th- uh, that we had this hour to talk about how you've done that and how you've taken you know, your research and ideas and practice and teaching and brought that to others around the world. Gretchen Spritzer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Stu. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gretchen Spritzer and that it provoked your thinking, prodded you to come up with ideas for actions you might take in your job to craft it so it's more meaningful to you, so you can see its impact on other people and so feel more connected to its purpose beyond the paycheck. So here is an invitation, a challenge. Consider taking a small step toward thinking a bit differently about how your work does indeed affect other people. And you can see how what you do every day reflects a larger purpose. So just take a moment to step back and ask yourself, how are you serving others? How are you making a difference for our collective home, the planet Earth? Try this reimagining and see whether your view of yourself in your work role adjusts, starts to shift, and how this carries over to how you see yourself in your non-work life. Do you see yourself differently? Let me know what you discover. I'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me directly. It's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.